What is up, guys? It's KJ Short for Khalil Jones, and this is Wild Theology, and I have a very special guest with me, Mr. Daniel. Introduce yourself, man. Hey, everyone. Daniel Vincent from the Particular Baptist Podcast. What's up, man? It's definitely the first time you've been on, so I'm so glad to have you back again. I've been absent for a while, just working some things, so it's good to be back and just have you back on as another guest, man. Yeah, it's been a little bit. I think we were on the show. Sean was with me, I think, too. That was a few years ago. Yeah, I think we um been we a while. <laughs> the confession. I couldn't remember which one it was. What's yeah, the... we were going through the confession at the yeah. It was probably one of the confessional chapters. Yep, and here we are again doing it for a second time. <laughs> so full circle. What's um yep. what's been going on with the podcast, man? Any uh, new updates? Anything coming out recently? Are you working on? Yeah, so we uh, I starting to plan out the beginning of next year. Um, hope to have um. I want to try and have more guests on at the beginning of the year. I already have one set up for January, um, and I hope to try and get maybe a couple more for the first quarter of, of 2024. Um, I took a little bit of a break from from guests. I wanted to kind of slow down a little bit, focus yeah. on some other things, but I, I kind of want to rev that up again. Um, but yeah, we're just cranking them out and want to keep doing the work. I, I enjoy it. I love doing the podcast and um yeah we'll just keep trucking along that's big time big time now just in case i have like a new audience or new crowd man can you just tell us a little bit about yourself man or how you came to fate what led you start doing podcasts if you're doing ministry now just things like that sure so i i attend a, a church in northern virginia where i live um i live in the dc area so there's a, a reform covenant reform baptist church is where i go i'm a deacon there um in terms of ministry so i i teach um, we call it equipping hour, but it, you know that's more commonly known as Sunday school. Um, but I do teach that uh, fairly frequently. I'm getting ready to preach here uh, in January, actually, okay. for uh, the church. Um, in terms of some things I like to do on the site, I love to read. I, I'm reading something all the time, and I'm always buying a book. My wife is always like, "Hey, did you buy a book? Did you buy something?" Is that a book? You know, she looks at the Amazon costs and the credit card and it's like, oh, did you get a book? Yes, I bought a book. I bought a book. So I'm always reading something. That's that's probably what besides, you know, doing the podcast and the ministry stuff with the particular Baptist, that's probably my favorite thing to do uh, is read. I, I just I'm always absorbing information and I usually like to read a couple of different things like I'm reading. I usually like to read something theological and then I like to read something historical. Good. Um, whether it's church history or world history or something like that. I, I love history. I've always been a history buff. So those are some things I like to do on, my, on the side. I work in D.C. That's kind of a little bit about me personally. I work for um, city government there. And so, you know, I'm commuting into D.C. a few days a week and having to make the trek down there. But, yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a busy life. But the Lord's been good providing for our needs and and especially giving me the opportunity to continue to do this ministry, which over the past few years, I've been really able to, with the help of some other brothers, really get going and um, get off the ground and get to where we are. So I'm thankful um, for that. In terms of my testimony, um, I don't really know exactly when I was saved. Like I don't have like a, some people can put the day and the time on it. I can't, but it was probably when I was a teenager. Um, I grew up in a uh, a mostly Christian home. Uh, my mother didn't come to faith till a little bit. I was a little bit older, but my dad, I think, was uh, a believer 
for quite a while up until that point. Um, but as far as I can remember, I've been in the Reformed faith, start off in the Presbyterian circles, even though my, my parents were, at least my dad wasn't of conviction of Presbyterianism. Um, but we attended a Presbyterian church or introduced to Reformed theology, and it just kind of went from there. Um, so I've grown up in the church pretty, as far back as I can remember. Um, so the Lord's been good in, in you know, allowing me to grow up in a good home and, and have uh, parents who have raised me in, in the fear and admonition of the Lord and, and been able to be in Reformed circles especially. So that, that has been very, very helpful. That's big time. It's so uh, awesome here, man. Um, I know, like you said, you may not know like the exact day when it happened, but the, the biggest thing is that God still brought you from death to life, man, and in darkness. Amen. And so that's always powerful. <clears throat> now, you hinted at a little bit. You say you're always reading. Who is someone like your favorite theologians? Um, if if I'm talking about like references, definitely John Gill on the Baptist. I, I love John Gill. I reference him all the time when I'm preparing for podcasts or preaching or teaching i i'm always consulting gill his bible commentary is is priceless and, and invaluable um modern theologian i mean you know I, I love my john owens i love my particular baptist uh you know brethren from back in the day um probably my favorite modern day theologians probably um jim sam renahan james dolezal richard barcellus those guys that you know kind of mm -hmm. float in that that vein, especially when you're seeing the recovery of particular Baptist theology coming back. Um, I think it's, you know, it, it's good to get close to those brothers, you know, and, and learn from them and just absorb information from, because they're, they're really kind of the authorities in our day, especially, excuse me, Jim and Sam Renahan. I reference them all the time. Um, and I actually have a stack of books from here for today. Um, just, you know, being able to pull from that historical information that people really didn't have access to maybe 15, 20 years ago. Definitely. So, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I gain a lot of information and benefit from those guys. I love uh, John Gill. I love Cal. I love a lot of people you just named. Um, but you you kind of hinted earlier, talk about referring about this brethren. And that's actually we're going to talk about, you know, today, chapter seven of the confession. You know, back then, the uh, 17th century particular Baptists, they came up with our confession in chapter seven. You know, it deviates a little bit from the, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, so I'm going to read paragraph one. <clears throat> and we'll just kind of go from there. But I guess a, sure. a good starting point would be, you know, this title is called Covenant, God's Covenant. What is a covenant? What's a good definition of that? How would you define that? Yeah, so a good definition of a covenant is God condescending to man. Uh, in setting stipulations, uh, like sanctions, commands, uh, typically rewards for obedience, and and then sanctions for disobedience. And at the end of the day, it's really a mutual agreement between you know two parties. And it's not a contract, right? It's a little different than a contract. Um, but I guess you could liken a contract to it in a sense. But it's definitely not a contract in the same way we would understand a formal contract today, you know, where you're signing on the dotted line and you're held to those. You know, this is definitely more of a give and take and mutual benefit that is inherent in, you know, I give you something, you give me something, or the, the person giving the covenant might have to be obligated to certain things that might not be the case um, for the other person. So I think there are some uh, definitional uh, things there. I'll, I'm going to read a little bit from this is uh, Sam Renahan's The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant yeah. and His Kingdom. 
Uh, I don't know if you've read this. Yeah, a little bit. Very, very helpful. He has a really helpful definition in here. Uh, page 41, if I can find it. Here it is. Um, or page 40, I should say. Uh, this is Sam Renahan. He says, a covenant in Hebrew and Greek is guaranteed commitment. Two parties make commitments to one another. Their commitments are often summed up in I will, you will statements. Different covenants have different kinds of commitments, and the varying kinds of commitments in these covenants result in different kinds of covenants. So it's really, you know, I will, you will. I'll do something, you will do something. And then that's reflected in different kinds of commitments and, and you know, fleshes out differently depending on what kind of covenant uh, you're looking at. Um, another definition, and probably along the same lines, this is from Jim Renahan's commentary on the confession, page 192. Yeah. Uh, he brings out a helpful uh, definition here. I think this is Nehemiah Cox, actually, he's quoting from. Uh, let's see here. So this is Nehemiah Cox, he's quoting from. The notion of a covenant adds assurance to that of a promise, as it implies a special bond of favor and friendship which belongs unto federal interest and relation for a covenant is the foundation of a special relation betwixt the parties concerned therein, the kind and benefit of which relation is determined by the covenant itself, the nature promises and end thereof. So kind of along the same lines, you know, it's, it's a, I will, you will, I'm making, there's this special bond and agreement between the parties and then everything that comes with that. Definitely, definitely. Now, I know this is probably like jumping a gun, but I know there's probably some listeners that haven't heard this, and I know most of our listeners have heard it, but just for kind of both parties, what it, I know we're going to use these words. What's the covenant of works, and what's the covenant of grace, and how do those two differ? But the confession is going to kind of hint at it. We're going to talk about it, but just kind of quick definition of those two things. So, like, listeners here, they kind of know where, okay, he already said this. Yeah, so the covenant of works, um, it's definitely discussed in paragraph one. Uh, implicitly, it doesn't use the term covenant works like the Westminster Confession does in, in paragraph two of chapter seven of that confession. But it's basically discussed there. You have word uh, it. Let me pull up the language here. Um, <clears throat> between God and the creature so great, although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him, yet they could never attain the reward of life, but some voluntary condescension, which he had pleased to express by way of covenant. So in terms of the covenant of works, and I think this is actually comes out more in paragraph two, but you can see yeah. some implications here, I think. But covenant of works is basically God, at least with Adam, condescending to Adam and saying, if you do this, you will live. And in this case, it was eternal life, right? If, if Adam had obeyed God and lived a life of perfect obedience, he would have merited. And I know that term is people don't like to hear that, but <laughs> in this particular context, it that he definitely would have inherited or, or merited eternal life by virtue of his obedience to God. Um, there are those who say that there was no covenant of works, that God just would have graciously saved Adam. That's not what we see here. God clearly uh, makes the basis of Adam's life is based on how he lives. So if you do this and live, if you don't do this, you'll die. Uh, so it, there's a covenant of works in that sense. And then, of course, you have what some would call republication of the covenant of works in the covenant of Moses, um, where, you know, it, there's the same principle. It's not eternal life that's merited by living in, you know, according to the law, but there is, um, you know, at least land promises or yeah. temporary benefits that are given by virtue of obedience. Like you'll get to live in the land if you obey my law, you'll live, you won't be killed by your enemies, that kind of thing. 
So it has to do with, if I do this, I merit this. Um, and then the covenant of grace is different than that, and that it is all of grace, and the requirements of the covenant of works really are fulfilled by Christ. And we're receiving those benefits by virtue of faith. Faith is a condition for getting those benefits, but it's not something, excuse me, that you're meriting. It's not a work that's counted towards you, towards righteousness. Yeah. It's a simple receiving of those benefits. And as you're receiving those benefits and by faith believing in the, the covenant head, Jesus Christ, you're receiving his benefits because he represents that covenant, just like Adam was the head of the federal representative or the head of that covenant of works representing all mankind. So whatever happened to Adam happened to the rest of mankind in that regard. Um, the same is with Christ. If we're united to Christ, now all of those benefits become ours because he represents us before God covenantally. And so that's uh, really the, the fundamental difference between the two. One is of works where I the benefits of that covenant are based on what I do. They're merited truly. The other one is solely on grace based on what Jesus did. And we simply receive those benefits by faith, you know, it, by virtue of being in that covenant. Beautifully explained, man, <clears throat> and well articulated. And um, I know, of course, we're going to talk about the covenant redemption at the end of this. But I, I'll just read paragraph one. You kind of hit, you read it a little bit. But let's kind of break some of this down. Um, paragraph one of our confession, it says, though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their cr creator, the distance between God and these creatures is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. He has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework or covenant framework. And of course, we see the scriptural references, Luke 17 and 10, Joe 35, 7 and 8. What's some things you see working in this um, this paragraph? Yeah, so this is really starting to set the stage for uh, Roman, what we see in Romans 5, where <clears throat> we have fallen under the curse of the law by virtue of being in Adam. So we're in Adam. Adam represents us before God as our covenant head. And so his sin is imputed to us. We're counted as if we actually ate the fruit. We didn't eat the fruit, right? We weren't there 4,000 years ago or whatever the case is. But we're being treated you know, as if we did do that thing because yeah. Adam uh, sinned and we are imputed or accredited with that particular act. So you can see some of that here. Man having brought himself under the curse of the law by this fall. And it's important to point out, too, that with Adam, uh, man was not ultimately held accountable to God because they violated the law of Moses or they violate the law of Moses. Man is ultimately accountable to God because we sinned in Adam, which is the law of nature, right, which was given before the law of Moses came on the scene. So there was somewhat of a, a distinction there. Uh, particular Baptist made and Jim Renahan talks about, and I'm pulling, you know, you get, uh, you get, shameless yeah. plug, I guess. And, and for sources, I'm pulling heavily from the Renahans in my discussion, but, um, you know, you, you do see a distinction between natural law and the law of Moses properly given, uh, even though they both have, you know, basically are the same. The law of Moses is starting on the foundation of natural law, which is, given to Adam and wherein we are held accountable to. So you see some of that language here. He's under the curse of the law by his fall. And then you see the covenant of grace coming on the scene here where God makes the promise of uh, Genesis 3.15 that there would be one who would come 
crush the head of the serpent. His heel would be bruised. Obviously, this is a, a precursor to the covenant of grace that would come down the road is the promise of it. Yeah. And you start to see that coming out here. Now, real quick, <clears throat> in paragraph one, I like what um Sam Renahan says in his like the book you just quoted earlier. Um, they're like covenants are not naturally imposed. So, like, um, I know there's kind of some various different opinions of how this covenant is formulated. Um, I know Jeff Johnson talks about the covenant of works being the moral law, and that's kind of distinct from what Renahan may say that the, the covenant of works is simply the covenant of works that was formulated with Adam, the Adamic covenant, you know. So how do, um, what is that language that, you know, covenants are not naturally imposed, but like how the paragraph frames it, that God must come down and, and kind of lay out these terms? How would you kind of articulate that? Yeah, I, I think that comes from what the confession says, that the the distance between the creature and the creator is so great. So you can see a biblical doctrine of God, which is founded in chapter two of our mm -hmm. confession, right? That the creature and the creator are not the same. They're not mixed. They're in no way touching each other. They're no way overlapping. They're so great. There's such a there's such a fundamental distinction between God and the creature that man can't in any way really interact with God unless God somehow condescends to us. And so the way God has done that is by way of covenant, right? So in terms of how he interacts with man, and you can see this broadly speaking too, like in the Noahic covenant, that's not a redemptive covenant at all. That's a covenant that's with all of creation, not even just man, with the animals, the earth, yeah. everything, right? God is not going to flood the earth again, and he lays some stipulations for man and how he's to live. That's universal for all men. And so you do see God working however it is, whether redemptively or generally, he's doing so by virtue of some kind of covenant. Right. So that's the grounds upon which God is working with man. And it's grounded in that principle that the distance between God and the creature is so great that there's no way we can interact with God unless he comes to us and takes the initiative. And that's always even with the covenant of works, um, there is a graciousness to the covenant of works in as much as God condescended to Adam. Um, although, and it, again, there are people who who take that too far and say, well, there is no covenant of works because God you know, saves graciously, which I think is yeah. not, you can't pull from the text at all. But even, even the principle behind the covenant of works, just the fact that it came to Adam at all is, is a gracious act because it's God taking the initiative, um, not Adam. Yeah. <clears throat> now, how would you go kind of, um, kind of articulate, um, our obedience to God, does that merit anything to God? Um, what is that kind of, what's the distinction between like our obedience to God merit anything and then what you see in the covenant works for Adam's obedience? How would you kind of kind of deal with those two the, the distinct things? Yeah, so when we're talking about our obedience now, that's a result of being in the covenant of grace. So we're in the covenant of grace, united to Christ. We've received his benefits. And in fact, Ephesians 1 says that we received all spiritual blessings, right? All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are ours in Christ. So we united Christ, they belong to us. And that would include, um, you know, our sanctification, redemption, his righteousness through justification so that we are made right before him, judicially speaking, yeah. in, a, in a penal sense. So we have all those things now. So there's no need for us to, you know, have any kind of merit before god in a penal or judicial sense that's already been taken care of so yeah. any 
action that we have is really out of thankfulness and by the Spirit's work. You know, our confession will um, talk about later on uh, that the foundation of our sanctification is, and this is chapter 13, I think, foundation of our sanctification is by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. So the gospel is the foundation for how we live. And so it's not that our works merit anything uh, in a, you know, ultimate justification standing before yeah. God, because that's already been done, but they flow from being in the covenant of grace. It's a natural result of, of being saved. We're living by faith, right? Um, Hebrews 11, uh, so on and so forth. And then with Adam's case, this was truly a meritorious uh, act before God, judicially and penally speaking, because of the covenant he was in, of those conditions um, that were there. That's really the, the distinction. Gotcha, gotcha. I think um, Sam Renham talked about that in the first couple of chapters as well, that uh, to be kind of created in the image of God already, that kind of presupposes, you know, our obedience to God, but that's still distinct in that uh, the blessings that you get for the obedience specifically for Adam in that covenant, that demic covenant, for, you know, gain eternal life and not gain eternal life. So I like how Renningham puts that. Now, uh, in the next uh, paragraph, you can read that if you want to. Um, uh, paragraph two of the confession that we can talk about. Yeah. So, uh, moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life, his Holy Spirit, and make them willing to believe. So this one is... Oh, I'm sorry, brother. Go ahead. No, you're good. I got a little cold. <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, so, you know, we're seeing, you know, that man has fallen. They're cursing Adam. Adam's blown it, right? He's he screwed up. He ate the, he ate the fruit. Uh, not a good look. Adam, Adam blew it, and now he condemned the entire human race. But now we see the promise come on the scene. Genesis three fifteen, um, and it immediately our confession starts talking about the basis of this covenant. Right, he freely offers sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. So Christ, being that head of that covenant, is now you know where those benefits are coming from. So faith is now being required of. Uh, anyone who wants to be saved, and then that promise is being given that all who are ordained to eternal life in his Holy Spirit, making them willing and able to believe. So you start to see the covenant come on the scene now in promise form uh, to Adam and Eve, and they were saved by looking to that promise, right? They were saved the same way that we are. They might not have understood all the ins and outs of yeah. the gospel like we do today, but they had the promise and they believed in that promise that there would be one who would come and, and crush the head of the serpent. And they were justified by faith. They had the same faith of Abraham and they were saved by virtue of the benefits of uh, the future covenant of grace. Definitely. 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 I say we're well articulated now um, within this curse, you know, obviously, you know, all those reformers would say this, but I just kind of get to pick your mind. Um, either one is either under the curse of, of the covenant of works or even, you know, I guess blessed by the covenant of grace and what Jesus did. And so how does that work? Um, you look at Galatians, you know, chapter three, Romans, 
the Jews, they were trying to use this law that God gave them to like merit, you know, eternal life. It's almost kind of like making the law like a covenant of works in a sense. But that, that was never the purpose of the law. It was to point them to Christ be subservient. Um, how do you kind of deal with that? You know, either somebody's either under the curse of the covenant of works or they're either in the covenant of grace. How does that work for you? Yeah, so it's it's really one or the other. You're either in Adam or in Christ, and Paul doesn't yeah. know any other cate- any other two categories. Um, you can see this, I think, brought up very clearly um, in terms of the contrast in First uh, Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about, you know, you're in Adam, this happens, you're in Christ, this happens. There's no third category. So you're either under the covenant of works with Adam condemned and going to hell, or you're in... Uh, union with Christ in the new covenant with his benefits imputed to you. And I think Romans 5 brings that out very well, too, that there is this sin and death that comes through Adam, um, and we are condemned in Adam, right? We're condemned along with Adam, even though we didn't actually do anything Adam did. So you you only have those two categories. So if someone's trying to live by the law in order to uh, to merit some kind of salvation before God— they're not going to be able to do that. I mean, you can't possibly live holy enough to be able to meet God's holy standards. But, uh, you know, if you're in the covenant of grace, there's no need for you to do that at all because it's already been done for you. And that's, you know, part of the glorious news right there is that it's already been done for us. If all who believe have all those requirements taken care of, we just need to receive it and rest in it. That's it. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, Christians throughout time, they've said that, you know, in Christ, you know, we're saved by his active and passive obedience. And I think of like, you know, under Adam, we're condemned by, you know, Adam's passive, you know, disobedience as well as our active disobedience in the sin. So like how you articulate it, is that already to be born under Adam? You're already under the curse because Adam's sin has been imputed to you or transferred to you. And then not only that, we cannot fulfill our part of that covenant, you know, uh, because we sin daily. So the, I think what Galatians talks about curses, everyone does not continue in all things written in the law. So God's standard is not if you do it for a period of time, but you have to be perfect in all aspects of it. So the moment you're yeah. born, from the time you die, you cannot have sin in your entire life because if you do, you're already under the curse. That's why yeah, it's a perpetual obedience. And it's interesting, the the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter seven, paragraph two, when it talks about the covenant of works of Adam, it talks about the. it doesn't just say Adam had to you know check the box and obey it was a perpetual continuous obedience so basically he had to live his whole life perfectly of not eating that tree eating of that tree in order to get the benefits if he's you know he he lived up until the last moment of his life and he ate that fruit that would have been it it wouldn't have mattered um so yeah it was continuous perpetual obedience before god uh that and that's a good point you bring out there Big time. <clears throat> and that's what makes the covenant of grace, like you said, so more special. Like that's that that um that blessed hope that we have in Christ, the gospel. It, you yes. know, it is a covenant of grace in that everything's fulfilled. Like it, it essentially for us, it's a covenant of works because Christ is a fulfilled covenant of works. So that by faith, we're yep. in the same, the same blessings that Adam would have received, we receive in Christ. And so I see a distinction. Yes. Um, that's why we see Romans 8 verse 1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. You know, Christ is, you know, he's abiding all the aspects of the law, the civil, ceremonial judicial he's kept everything for us so that we can enter into the throne of god and that's so special for us i also like too at the end of the confession it says and promises are given to all those are endangered to eternal life his holy spirit making them willing and able to believe that's also another benefit within this covenant that all those who are in this covenant 
they have the Holy Spirit and able to believe. Now, here's a good question. I know we're dealing with covenant theology, but just for the listeners, for the sake of it, do you believe that Old Testament saints they had the Holy Spirit under that Old Testament time frame? Yeah, I think they had the Holy Spirit in some sense. I don't. I think there might be a distinction with how the Holy Spirit was given. Yeah. To New Testament saints versus Old Testament saints, but Paul is very clear in Romans eight that if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not His. Um, so I think that you're going to see that every Christian throughout history is in some sense going to have the spirit of God. Um, but of course, you know, Pentecost was kind of a, a special outpouring of the spirit with the gifts of God. Uh, the, you know, the special gifts of the spirit to establish the church were coming onto the scene. So you do see a different outpouring of the spirit and maybe a greater working of the spirit. Um, but I don't see any difference between the fundamental difference between the uh, the spirit being needed for those who believe um the spirit really is that guarantee of our inheritance if you don't have the spirit there's no way you can have that guarantee of inheritance there's no way you can have the blessings in christ um, the spirit is tied directly with that in ephesians 1 so i i don't see how you can uh, any old testament saint could be saved without uh, the spirit of god Good. I think Romans 8 talks about policy. I think there are some who do kind of dispute that, even in reform circles. They have differences on that, I think. Yeah, I'll echo what you said as well. Uh, just quoting Paul, Romans 8 talks about how the Spirit is our first fruits and how that goes together, too. Like it's the inheritance, like it's the stamp that we know that we have these things waiting for us that when we, you know, we die. Right. I, I'm going to read uh, paragraph three, but I'll ask you a good question. Um, kind of dealing with this covenantal framework, the 69 federalism, how it kind of paints a picture of the covenant works. Covenant of Grace. And I know there's a distinction between our, you know, PCA brethren, 69 Federalism, and it's also 20th Century Baptist. So I just kind of want to pick your main your brain on these things. But let's read the paragraph three real quick. <clears throat> it says this, the covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all, to Adam and the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by the fa by father's steps until full discovery. Therefore, it was completed in the New Testament. And it's founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the father, the son, and by redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of that covenant that all prostate of fallen Adam that everywhere saved did obtain life and blessed immortality. Man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon these terms in which Adam stood in the state of innocence. Now, a good key question. Of course, you know, a simple question would be what is 1689 federalism and how would they articulate, you know, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace? Throughout, you know, I guess it, how does that differ between the old covenant and the new covenant? But if we can all, I guess, go a little bit deeper than that question. Um, what the old what covenant were the Old Testament saints under? What is the old covenant for you? Um, so typically when you're talking about the old covenant, people refer to the Mosaic covenant. Yeah, I think that's kind of the classical distinction that you see. Um, and especially in scripture too, you see the contrast in Hebrews between the old and especially Hebrews 8, between the old, which is passing away, and the new which is coming onto the scene. And he's he clearly Based on, especially based on the rest of his discussion in chapters 9 and 10, uh, he clearly has the Mosaic Covenant in mind because he talks about the sacrifices, the priesthood, and things like that. So uh, when I use the Old Covenant, I try to use it in the biblical sense and in the classical sense, at least from our confessional standpoint and the Westminster confessional standpoint. So yeah. that would be the covenant, of Mos uh, the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic Covenant. Um, in terms of 1689 federalism, so uh, federalism really sees the distinction between, uh, you know, the, the different covenants, their own, they are their own unique covenants, right? 
they're not some sort of um, administration of the same covenant, which is yeah. typically the covenant of grace. That's really what you see in a in a sixteen eighty nine Federalist view, and I would argue is the view of our of our confession and in the general, at least generally, the confessional writers and signers. Um, and then you have like a Presbyterian brethren who would see that one administration, or I'm sorry, multiple administrations, one substance view, and I think that's the the 20th century Reformed Baptist view as well. Yeah. Uh, the Presbyterians just kind of go a little farther with that, and they'll apply that to things like baptism. Excuse me, baptism and and covenant membership might be a dual membership, especially today. You see that. Um, like if you talk to the guys at Reform Forum, who are kind of the Voss, um, Gerdos Voss kind of guys, you're going to see kind of this two uh, membership covenant where you're going to have unbelievers and believers within the new covenant, um, you know, while be, because of the parallels between uh, the new and the old or because the substance is really the same. There's There's yeah. not a whole lot of difference there, right? Uh, so I think those are kind of the three main views that you're going to come across. Um, if you're looking at this from a confessional standpoint, you do see, um, you know, they're following primarily John Owen, or they're using him quite a bit. They really didn't disagree with him fundamentally. Uh, and they, even though John Owen wasn't a Baptist, he was an independent <laughs> and he helped author a different confession, the Savoy Declaration. But there's a lot of commonality between those two confessions and the particular Baptists loved John Owen. They, they thought he, they agreed quite a bit. Uh, Nehemiah Cox said this as it relates to covenant of grace. He said, it must also be noted that although the covenant of grace was revealed this far to Adam, yet we see in all this there is no formal and express covenant transaction with him. Even less was the covenant of grace established with him as a public person or representative of any kind. And by public person, he's talking about federal head, right? Um, but he, but as he obtained interest for himself alone by his own faith in the grace of God revealed in this way, so must those of his posterity that are saved. So Adam, you know, didn't become some sort of public person as it relates to this covenant of grace because it wasn't made with him in that way. He had to believe by faith, just like everybody else in in his posterity did in order to be saved <laughs> in what was to come in the in the promise, and then of course the covenant. Um, kind of established uh, later. Um, did you want me to go into some of the the biblical data talking about that distinction, or did I answer your question? Yeah, we did good. Hold on, real quick. Yeah, go ahead, man. All right. So, if we're looking at what constitutes a covenant, at least when we're looking at it from the old covenant perspective, right? Because that's the parallel that's made in Hebrews between the, the old and the new covenant. The new covenant was not ratified until the death of Christ. If you look at Hebrews 9, 11 through 17, we'll take a look at that real quick. Uh, it says, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through this eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, 
for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that's the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Verse 16, for where there is a testament or a covenant, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator or mediator. For a, test a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So you can see here there is an establishment of the new covenant by virtue of the death of Christ. And it's very clear in verses 16 and 17 that the covenant cannot come into effect until the testator has died, at least in the context of um, the old and the new covenants, the Mosaic covenant in contrast with the, the new covenant. So the new covenant couldn't properly have existed as a covenant until Christ himself died and ratified that covenant. So that's why you see this language, uh, you know, kind of in the confession, um, you know, it, I think this is why you see, and at least in part why you see this language, where you see this language of revelation. It's revealed yeah. over time, and then it comes into full revelation in Christ. Hebrews 1.1, Christ comes on the scene. He reveals what the scriptures uh, are saying and, and God's true revelation, and he has come on the scene, and he's brought the new covenant really into force, so to speak. So the new covenant didn't exist as a covenant, formally speaking, until... Um, until he died. Galatians 3, 15 through 18, you see the new covenant was promised or revealed to Abraham, but not given as a covenant, uh, formally speaking. And in fact, when we look at verse 18 of chapter 3 of Galatians, it says that the inheritance promised to Abraham did not come by the law, or it would no longer be of promise, implying something else was to come, right? So the prompt, the benefits of or that the promise itself couldn't have come by the law, or it wouldn't have made any sense that God made a promise to Abraham that the new covenant was to come, which he clearly was yeah. talking about, in you all the nations shall be blessed. He was talking about something coming later, uh, not something that was uh, given to Abraham. So there's a you know clear a distinction between the Abrahamic covenant and uh, the covenant of grace. And then, you know, if you look at... Um, Galatians chapter 4 as well, it talks about the uh, the slave woman and or the bond woman and the free woman, mm -hmm. right? There is a distinction there uh, being given, and he specifically says it's, it's two different covenants. This verse 21 of chapter 4, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do not hear the law, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bond woman and the other free woman, but he who has the bond woman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman according free woman through promise which these thing which things are symbolic for these are the two covenants the one from mount sinai which gives birth to bondage with hagar for this is for this hagar is mount sinai in arabia and corresponds to jerusalem which now is as in bondage with her children but the jerusalem above is free which is the mother of us all and then of course this is heralding christ and in verse 27 rejoice so barren you who do not hear break forth and shout at labor for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. So this is, again, all this language is foreshadowing uh, Christ. And now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise, right? And then he says um, in verse 31, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free, right? So we're not 
we're not children of the old covenant. We're children of the free, who obviously is representing uh, the covenant of grace. And contextually in Galatians, Paul is talking about the gospel and the necessity of the gospel and that as opposed to living by the law. So grace cannot come by law. Uh, and so even if you want to say that uh, the old covenant is an administration of the new covenant, you have the problem of having to get around the fact that uh, the administration of that new covenant involves law, which, of course, grace cannot come by uh, in and of itself. They're diametrically opposed to each other, law and gospel. Uh, so one, uh, you can't live under that covenant of grace administered as law and truly say that you're, uh, you know, a child of the of the the free woman, uh, because then you'd be under the covenant which is binding by law. So you have to you kind of start conflating law and gospel at that point. Uh, clearly, Paul is distinguishing them and saying they're not the same. We're under this new covenant, this covenant of the free woman. We're not under the covenant of the bondwoman, which was the covenant made at Mount Sinai or given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Um, so those things uh, do not mix. You also have the principle, and Sam talks about this in his book of um, typology, right? The type and the anti-type. You have these types which represent and shadow something to come. They point towards something else. They don't point towards <clears throat> themselves, right? So you don't have the uh, the old covenant pointing towards itself as the covenant of grace, it can't, substantially speaking, but it's pointing towards the substance which is coming later. And that contrast is clearly made in Hebrews, and we read some of that in Hebrews 9. There's the contrast there uh, between the substance of the new covenant, which is Christ in his work, and the substance of the old covenant, which is law and, and bondage, right, as we see here in, in Galatians 4. Um, so those are, you know, some principles exegetically that we can use and i think hermeneutically too we have to be careful um i think uh, once you start using multiple administrations same substance you start to lose the principle or you have lost the principle at least in this case of reading the old testament in light of the new and i think that um, nehemiah cox in his discourse of the covenant said it very well he said quote the best interpreter of the old testament is the holy spirit speaking to us in the new so as we're looking at like hebrews 1 1 where christ is now you know he's now speaking to us and giving us the full revelation of god that we need to know for faith and practice right in himself and for salvation that special revelation the the prophet spoke over time but christ has now spoken he's now revealing what god has for us which would include understanding what the old testament says about himself and revealing the sh the types and shadows and shining light onto those shadows in the old testament so we can better understand them um so having a hermeneutic of reading the old testament in light of the new is very important for this discussion and our confession explicitly talks um about this principle in uh, chapter one, where it talks about reading the less clear passages in light of the clearer passages. Um, so this is a hermeneutical principle that they apply in their covenant theology um, to read what the apostles Christ have laid out for what the Old Testament means, um, instead of looking at the Old Testament and pushing forward into the new hermeneutically. Uh, so I know that's a lot. 
<laughs> I could definitely say more, but I think that kind of gives some of the basics um, exegetically, at least where I'm coming from. Um, yeah. So I hope that's helpful. <clears throat> you did good. I hope the listeners definitely um, hearing all those, they have like a basis to kind of know how the, the framers of our confession, how their minds are articulating this. Now I have a, a whole bunch of follow-up questions, but <laughs> but the first question, <laughs> would you say, so we, you kind of, you mentioned um, so far, you know, in our discussion that the old covenant you would identify as the Mosaic covenant. Mm -hmm. Would you say that the new covenant is the covenant of grace? Or how would you kind of, before I ask you my true follow-up questions, what would you say the new covenant is? Yeah, the new covenant is a covenant of grace. Yeah, okay. gotcha. like you see in Hebrews 8, uh, Jeremiah 31. Yep. All right. Now, um, I'm going to reread this Hebrews passage because I have a good question for you. You already kind of hinted at it. Um, Sam Renahan talks about this two-tier typology, and I have mm -hmm. a good question. Um, but Hebrews 9, verse 13, it says, For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the hay for sprinkling unclean sanctifies the purifying the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, without spot the guy cleans your conscience from dead works. So uh, Rainingham in his book, like you said, The Mystery of Christ, uh, he talks about this two-tier two typology. I think he kind of borrows the language from uh, John Cameron, and I think that's his name. Um, can you explain for the listeners what it, like, kind of define what is two-tier typology? And then I kind of good follow-up question. How does the Adamic covenant and the republication of that covenant work with the Mosaic covenant? That makes sense. Those things goes hand in hand. Yeah, Um I'd have to go back and refresh my memory on the two-tier topology. I'm not going to be I'm not going to be able to really dive into that. Um, unfortunately, um, I'm sorry. Good, <laughs> it's been a little bit since I've reviewed that part of his book, um, and I think it does get a little technical. Um, as it relates to the republication of the covenant works in the old covenant, that's what you you asked, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I would agree with that, and I think. Um, it was Benjamin Keach or Nehemiah Cox that talked about that. Um, I'd have to go back and check. But anyways, there I think there is a republication of the covenant of works, or it would be it's not a strict republication. I would I would agree with the terminology that it is a, an administration of the covenant of works, just uh, you know, kind of I don't even know if that's really a good term to use, but it is a covenant of works. That's probably a better term to use. It's yeah. not meritorious in terms of salvation. So the people in the old covenant were not living this way in order to gain eternal life, right? They were living this way to please God, but it, it had temporal benefits, right? And that might be where the, the two-tiered typology is coming from. It has the typology points forward to Jesus Christ, but it also has real benefits locally. Yeah, um, And you do kind of see this kind of sort of set up in the in the Abrahamic covenant where you see a pro and Sam talks about this as well I think where you do see uh part of the Abrahamic covenant is pointing forward to the new covenant and promising salvation but then there were real land promises right there was going to be an actual people that would come on the scene and there would be actual land that would be given to them um, obviously all that is setting up for redemptive history, what would come down the road. It doesn't stop there, but there is a sense where uh, the Abrahamic covenant has kind of two purposes, one to set up the people of Israel and one to truly point beyond Israel to Christ and in, in his coming, even though they're all involved in that ultimate goal of Christ's coming in, in the gospel. Um, there's kind of like you know, two tiers to that. And I think that might be where Sam's getting at. Again, I need to go back and read that, but yeah. I think that might be where he's coming from looking at it from, 
like the 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 sacrificial system really as um, serving those those two goals. It's pointing to Christ in shadow form. It isn't the substance itself because it's a type. It's pointing to the anti-type, which hadn't come yet, um, but it also has real implications for those people living where they were. If I do this, I won't get kicked out of the land. If I do this, I'm going to uh, live a long life more than likely and receive material blessings from God. But there certainly was no real, there's no eternal life. There was no, um, you know, eternal death necessarily, or, or at least life um, because of how they live. And I think you can see that like in Leviticus 18.5, um, there is, and I think you can probably find this in other places in the old covenant. Um, but if you do X, here's the benefits that you'll receive. If you don't, this is what will happen, right? Yeah. So I think that's kind of the picture that you see in the Mosaic Covenant. That was well, um, well said, man. Um, when I think about this typology that um, Renningham is getting at, um, you kind of hinted at it that there's a distinction between the covenant works and a covenant works. The mm -hmm. covenant works was formulated with Adam, and you know that that covenant's already you know abrogated. But we do see that kind of Renningham's getting that as well as you know, Nehemiah Cox, John Owens, the Framers of Our Confession. They're saying that the language is similar to do this and live, but you're saying that it pertains to simply just the blessings in the land of Canaan or life, therefore, of. Now, how does the topology work? Um, this outward cutting of the, uh, how we're, you know, pleasing the flesh, I guess, we're sanctifying the flesh versus that of what we see in the new covenant of grace that it just, just don't purify the flesh, but it purifies the, the heart. What's kind of your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, Hebrews passage you read, I think, is very clear in that distinction, right? So the 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 uh, the sacrifices don't actually do anything; they couldn't. Um, there wasn't any real cleansing of the conscience. Ultimately speaking, there was a a um, a pacifying, so to speak, of God's wrath in that, but that's pretty much it. There was no real ultimate forgiveness. There was no real dealing with sin. Um, because you had to keep doing it, right? You had to every year you had to come and do the sacrifices again. Every year you had to come and and kill another animal in order to uh, yourself not be killed. <laughs> so you had to you had to go through that process continuously. So it didn't solve the problem, right? And that's really where Christ comes in. And even the writer of Hebrews talks about how Christ didn't have to be continuously given. He entered the holy of holies once with his blood and the problem was taken care of uh and it truly did cleanse the conscience it truly did take care of sin it was a real effectual work um that doesn't have potential to to save anybody um, but it actually does do what it was set out to do um, it takes care of sin for those who are in that covenant uh, and so i think that's kind of where you see the the biggest difference there in terms of uh, how like a the ceremonial sacrifices work versus Christ's sacrifice. That's good. That's good. I've also seen a thing on Renningham and um, Barcelos. I think Brandon Adams, they're all in the video together. And um, Sam, he kind of says, I'm paraphrasing it, but he says that, you know, the the old covenant is a typological covenant of works. Not that, like you just said, not that it was kind of like the academic covenant, you know, republish and print it and stamp in the mosaic times and like do this and live. It's the same exact covenant Adam was under, but it was typological in that simply like you just said, it promised land, you know, blessings in the land of Canaan. It didn't marry eternal life if you kept these, but simply the land in Canaan. But it was more so subservient to the covenant of grace. 
you know, exposed their sin, but it pointed them to the promise of the covenant of grace that was alive at that time so that the people could be saved. And I think um, I, I like how he kind of articulated that. Um, now, I didn't notice at the time, uh, you know, Brandon Adams has a couple of articles, but he got interviewed Jeff Johnson a while ago. You know, Jeff's position is that the covenant of works, you know, it is the moral law. And so what you see in the garden is a um, administration of the moral law. You know, the command from Adam not to eat from the tree, that's a positive law, but it had moral implications to it. And so every time we see a covenant ratified, it's simply God adding positive laws to the moral law. And so, you know, the Edemic covenant would be the first administration of it, the Noahic covenant, the Davidic covenant. You keep going on and on and on. But how the confession differs from what Jeff is saying is that this is simply the old covenant. It's simply just a typological covenant. It's subservient to the covenant of grace. But I wanted to read this real quick, and I have a good question for you. Uh, I, I guess I kind of kind of asked the question now, so you got to get your mind thinking. What sure. covenant was Christ under that offered eternal life for the people in the covenant of grace? Was it the covenant of redemption or was it the covenant of works? Um, in Brandon Adam article, he says that, you know, that's a distinction between two different people in the reform camp. But he said the first position is that the Mosaic covenant was a national corporate covenant of works for life in the land of Canaan, physical and temporary blessings and curses. Israelites could not be saved through obedience to Mosaic law because it was not offered as a blessing to Mosaic law. And he says proponents of that position is himself, Sam Renahan, James Renahan, Richard Barcelos, John Nolan, Nehemiah Cox, and the framers of the confession. And then the position number two, it says the Mosaic covenant was a covenant of works for life in the land of Canaan, as well as eternal life. This was a new post-fall offer of eternal life to any who perfectly obeys. Israelites cannot be saved through the obedience of Mosaic law because their fallen nature hinders their perfect obedience. And so he says, Jeff Johnson hosts that view, someone named Pito, and I think Philip Carey, um, if I got the name correct. But what's your kind of thoughts on that? Um, was it the covenant of redemption that Christ was under that kind of offered eternal life for those in the covenant of grace? Or was Christ born under another covenant of works, um, the Mosaic covenant? Was that the same covenant that Adam had? Does that make sense? Yeah. So when you're talking about, um, I'll try to see if I can hit all your question here, but I, I think you talk <laughs> Covenant theology is it's a it's such it's a broad deep. topic. Um, I'll do my best. Um, so when we're talking about the moral law, we have to distinguish between natural law and the law of Moses. That's good. Um, when we're talking about natural law as being given to Adam, that's not strictly speaking the Ten Commandments, in my opinion, at least. Um, I, and I I think you can see a distinction of that in uh, the particular Baptists as well. You do see a distinction between the law of Moses, which is a it's a form of special revelation, special law given uh, with some positive law mixed into it. A lot, but then you have natural law, which everybody everywhere knows and has. Um, and I think that's why you do see that distinction because Adam was not given the law of Moses, right? He didn't have that given to him, formally speaking. He just had the law of nature. Now, the law of Moses covers what's in the law of nature, right? We love God and we love our neighbor. Uh, and that basic premise is there. So we need to worship God, love him perfectly. Um, we see Romans 1. You can see that kind of laid out pretty clearly. Natural law that all men knows they should worship God. They know they should uh, give praise to him and obey him and live according to his commandments but they don't have that special law given to them like the jews had special revelation given to them that the gentiles did not have yeah. but they're all kind of on that fundamental plane um so when you're talking about a covenant of works um they would be distinct in as much as 
you know, that sense. And then, of course, one, the latter, the old covenant is not, or the Mosaic covenant is not saving its people by virtue of living um, in those things. People are looking at the sacrifices and they're believing the promise of the, of the covenant of grace that was to come, um, but they're not saved, you know, by virtue of those things themselves. Uh, and I, you know, if, and that's really where the Jews kind of ran into problems like with circumcision and things like that in the Galatian church. And Paul had to correct them on that, that this does not bring salvation by virtue of keeping it or even by looking uh, and Paul may not have addressed these things directly, but you know, they weren't saved just by looking at the sacrifice itself by virtue of those things. Um, it, it was all typological and, and pointing forward. Um, now, I guess kind of a follow-up question to your question. When you talk about Jeff Johnson, um, is is that more of the 20th century view? Uh, I'm not familiar with his position. I haven't read his book on covenant theology, so I couldn't I couldn't tell you one way or the other, but I'm curious. Yeah, definitely. I think um 20th century view would be more in line with like what Sam Wadron holds to, and it's kind of very similar okay. to that of like the Westminster Confession. And I think with Jeff, it's, it's kind of very similar to what the um, 1689 fellows holds to except that he would say that not only did the mosaic covenant offer you know you know temporary blessings in the land of canon but if one hypothetical could keep all these laws in the mosaic covenant they could gain eternal life so he would see the mosaic covenant as like the demon covenant the moral law reinstated almost um, okay okay and so kind of like um if i go back um the, the covenant that works for him is the moral law whereas the framers mm -hmm. of the confession they would see the distinction is that um, the Edemic covenant, that's, that is the covenant works. And what we see throughout the Old Testament time frame is typological covenant works. So there's a distinction between a covenant works and the covenant works. What Jeff says is like, no, there's one universal covenant works. That's the moral law. And what you see is a simply a re republication of that same moral law, but it's as an adding positive laws to that. So if one can keep these positive laws, that is, you know, circumcision with the Abrahamic covenant, the, the civil law, ceremonial laws and Mosaic covenant all the things that was probably the Davidic covenant, it is to essentially, you know, obey the moral law that is loving God, our heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. They can hypothetically gain eternal life. But he's kind of articulating that basically all these promises was pointing to what Paul talks about in Galatians 3, I believe. This wasn't talking about individually, it was talking about Christ, the seed. So this is how God can still give this covenant because he had Christ in mind. Whereas the frame, I think how confession frames is though, there's a distinction between the Edemic covenant and then typological covenant to work because they're all subservient mm -hmm. to the covenant of grace. But I just kind of want to pick your mind, see what you thought as we're talking about covenant theology. So yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, Jeff Johnson, yeah, he. I guess I, I I haven't really studied much of his covenant theology, but that's an interesting view. And I I think the the fundamental flaw there, to borrow his language, of the fatal flaw of infant baptism. Uh, the fatal flaw I think of his view is you have to understand what covenant people are actually part of. Uh, the reason why the framers of our confession went back to natural law as what we're held accountable to is because that's what we are imputed with in Adam in terms of the the sanctions against us, right? It wasn't because we violated the moral law found in the uh, the Mosaic covenant. It's because we violated natural law in Adam. Um, so you really can't, I mean, once you establish that, you can't get around and come and say, well, if you theoretically had kept all this, no, it wouldn't have mattered because you're under the Adamic covenant. All humans are until they are in Christ. So that's what we're held accountable to. And I think that would be, you know, the 
the fatal flaw of his argument, so to speak. Um, but it's an interesting argument. I can see how he would, I think I can see how you would get there, but I, I don't think it works from, you know, looking at the covenantal history as a whole. Definitely, definitely. Now, a good follow-up question to that. Um, I initially asked you what covenant provided um, eternal life for us. Was it, you know, if we kind of borrow the language from Jeff Johnson that the Mosaic covenant kind of reinstates the demon covenant and says, if you don't do this and live and one can gain eternal life? Was, you know, Jesus, he was born under the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. Mm -hmm. Was that the covenant works, the same covenant works that Adam was under? Or was it the covenant of redemption that God had in turn to pass where Jesus would be born under a covenant of works similar to that of Adam? And keep these you know laws and fulfill it for us and provide life for us what would you say to that yeah i would say it would it would be the covenant of redemption that's good uh, and that's that's definitely the confessional view although to you know a little caveat not all the confessional writers agreed on that benjamin keach didn't believe in a distinct covenant of redemption yeah uh he believed i think he believed that the covenant of grace was just merely the covenant of redemption um so not you know a huge difference but there is some nuance there um, but yeah, he would be under the covenant of redemption, God sending him, so to speak, into the world um, to save uh, sinners. And he was born under the law, under the Mosaic law, and he did keep, um, you know, the Mosaic law perfectly, for sure, um, because he's, you know, he's God, he's holy. He And he wasn't born under Adam either. That's very clear because he uh, he was not conceived naturally. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, so he didn't inherit the sinful nature um, that Adam brought onto the human race or was imputed with Adam's sin. So you can see God even working there covenantally behind the scenes to make sure that even Christ in his humanity was not imputed with the sin of Adam um, as a man. That would be a huge problem um, that would make him not fit to be our Savior because he would be sinful. Uh, so, you know, he you know, avoided all that, but he did keep the Mosaic law perfectly, kept God's law perfectly on our behalf. Um, but particularly under the Adamic, uh, the law, even though he wasn't officially in that covenant, he kept the requirements of that covenant, um, at the very least, um, as it relates to, uh, natural law, loving God and loving neighbor and how that may have come out probably was primarily through the old covenant because that's the culture he lived in and where he yeah. found himself. So he obeyed the 10 commandments perfectly. He obeyed the ceremonial law perfectly. Um, but I wouldn't say that the ceremonial law and the 10 commandments necessarily in and of themselves were the only things that he obeyed and was imputed to us. It's just the righteousness of Christ of obeying God perfectly, uh, you know, obeying God and loving his neighbor perfectly fundamentally uh, and, and in terms of where Adam failed and redeeming us uh, from that, keeping that covenant of works for us. Um, so I think that's how you can see that distinction between the Mosaic and the Adamic in terms of Christ's life. And I've actually never heard that question before. That's a very interesting proposition because it does kind of, it makes you think about, okay, where does Christ's righteousness come from that's imputed to us, right? Um, and I think as long as you understand that the Mosaic law is really just uh, fundamentally the same as natural law fundamentally um, it, Jesus keeping the law the mosaic law perfectly is not an antithesis to him fulfilling the covenant of works with Adam and redeeming us in that sense because uh, that's really where eternal life uh, is found in the keeping of that covenant because that's where our sanction is under right <laughs> we're being punished not for disobeying the mosaic law but for 
being condemned in Adam. So we have to, um, you know, be redeemed uh, out of that curse under Adam. That's good. The way I look at it too, um, when you when you go to like that Genesis two and three narrative, you don't see nowhere in the narrative because um, God, we we do see a covenant works with Adam, but we see nowhere in the narrative like a substitute that God would provide in that same covenant works. We see, like you said, the promise of the covenant of grace there, but that's distinct from the actual covenant works that only Adam and all the posterity are in. So yes. by Christ being born distinctly different from how everyone born under Adam is, being born of a virgin, already he's not under that same exact covenant because he wasn't born the same way that the rest of man is. The yep. fact that we're all born totally depraved is evident that we're under that same curse of the covenant works. So that's why I think that code of redemption, it, you know, it, it was the um, another covenant works that was similar to that of uh, Ad Adamic covenant and that by Christ fulfilling all of those laws, even the same laws that Adam was under. Because, of course, there's no tree, you know, around for Christ to have eaten from. But I think right. the fact of do this and live, Christ fulfilled that to the T. That's why I, I quoted earlier Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those in Christ because, he, you know, Christ fulfilled all aspects of the law. That's kind of how you even see in Revelation, you even see the tree of life there, right? Which was in the garden. There was a tree of life, I, be um, I believe. So you do see these parallels between Eden in heaven and from what was on earth. The ultimate fulfillment being that Christ won this eternal life that was lost in Eden. Uh, it has nothing to do with the Mosaic Covenant at all. It's really repairing what Adam did. Um, and of course, Christ didn't need to be part of that covenant or he wouldn't be fit to be our perfect savior in the first place, which we need in order for the act of obedience and the passive obedience. We need a perfect sacrifice and we need someone to impute the righteousness um, of God to us. He had to live a perfect life on our behalf. He had to obey God and love his neighbor perfectly. Those are the things that he had to do, um, or we would not be able to stand before God. Um, but certainly not by virtue of the law of Moses, but that's, yeah, that's definitely not our confessional view. I don't think it's a <laughs> biblical view either. Definitely. Definitely. Now, um, a good question, you know, just for our PCA brothers, I'm sure they got this question for you. And I, you know, I'm still working through these things. But I think I, mm -hmm. I align more to like the 20th century Baptist. That's kind of like it frames the covenant of grace, similar to that of like the, the Westminster confession, but I'm still yeah. aligned with the rest of the confession in 1689. And uh, I know what definitely what it teaches. Cause I held that view for the longest, but um, when we think about the covenant of works being a typological covenant of works and that it only promised, you know, land blessings in the land of Canaan. We, you know, we as reformers, we speak of total depravity, that mankind apart from Christ, they can't marry any kind of um, obedience that, that's pleasing to God. So the unbelievers that were under this uh, typological covenant of works, how do you view their obedience to that covenant? And um, God, I guess, blessing them to allow them to remain in that covenant, if that makes sense. I know somebody, a Presbyterian brother right now, they're, they're kind of furious that I haven't asked you that question yet, but I just want to kind of see what your mind would say. Yeah, so if they're living under that covenant, they would just have to, I mean, especially if you're a male, part of that was circumcision, right? And we do know that um, circumcision continued even after Abraham. Uh, you can clearly see this with Moses. When he didn't circumcise his son, God was going to kill him. Uh, it was definitely a, a something that was still required. So circumcision was part of that. Um, and then just keeping those covenant stipulations, if they broke the covenant, they could be destroyed. They could die. Uh, nations came, and we see this. They're exiled. Dan, uh, Book of Daniel, um, Nehemiah. You you see this exile return. 
you know, kind of saga, if you will. But that's from breaking the covenant, right? Um, so in terms of that, that's really as as much in terms of covenant breaking and, and keeping the covenant as as it would go for the members. Um, and then if they did have faith in the true gospel and the promise that was to come, they would see those promises pictured in the, you know, like in the sacrifices and would believe and be saved. So you did have a mixed covenant, right? You had people who were strictly unbelievers, but were still members of that Mosaic covenant. And then people who were members of the covenant, but were also members of the future covenant of grace um, by faith. So you you had this this mixture. And then, of course, with the new covenant coming on the scene, there is no more mixture because all will know me, all will know the Lord, and no one will need to tell them and say, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. So you do see, you know, a, a single people all uh, brought under this this covenant. You don't have a mixed uh, covenant membership anymore. Gotcha, gotcha. <clears throat> and then for all of the, the passages, you know, Scripture and Old Testament, I think Isaiah, Amos, um, I can't think of another one. It's some time ahead, I can't think of it. But we see how God, he never, he's never wanted like a faithless obedience. He's always wanted circumcision of the heart. Even, um, you know, in Genesis, you see Paul talking about all his language that it, it, it had always kind of promised to kind of being circumcised of heart, not just merely our cut in the flesh, mm -hmm. but he always wanted, you know, hearts. So how does that kind of fit in with that typological covenant works and that these unbelievers were still able to, like kind of what you're articulating, still able to keep this covenant, even though um, God, he kind of hates, you know what I'm saying, a faithless obedience. Yeah, yeah. And it goes back to, you know, having that fundamental distinction in terms of the substance of the covenants. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, that's really where it comes back to. And then circumcision, too, is even typological. Um, it doesn't have the one-to-one -one correlation that our Presbyterian brethren will make it have. You know, like in Romans 4, they'll talk about um, how circumcision is the the seal of faith. Um, but that happened after Abraham believed by faith. So if anything, it's more of a picture of baptism than it is, uh, you know, believer's baptism than it is infant baptism. Um, but it's that in itself is typological of, uh, you know, of the new heart that is given uh, and you know, kind of picturing the faith of Abraham, so to speak. But there is some typological nature as well. But as long as you have that substance distinction between those covenants, uh, really all those, you know, problems go away because you see the respective um, actions and federal heads and the recipients and the, the benefits of those covenants all are respected to their covenants. Um, so like questions of faithfulness versus faithlessness to a covenant uh, really don't come into play uh, in a in a worldview, so to speak, like that, because uh, we would just say that faithlessness to that covenant brings the covenant sanctions that they're under uh, to bear on their head. And it has nothing to do um, with their eternal life in terms of gaining it, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, living out those principles and the covenant, the laws and the commandments, et cetera. That's good. That's good. I'm uh, running out of time. I got uh, for my listeners, you don't know, I uh, do my recordings on Zoom. And so Zoom has this feature where you only can record for 40 minutes, sadly. And, um, <laughs> but if you buy the premium membership, maybe I can sponsor not your plan. You buy the premium membership, you can record for longer than that. But I always like to close uh, my podcast episodes with the gospel. We talked about covenant theology. I see the gospel all throughout this. I think I heard one, th one theologian says that 
um, the gospel, you know, in Christ, Christ fulfilled the covenant of redemption by keeping the covenant works to provide the covenant of grace for us. And so I can simplify all that is that how Daniel, you know, and myself, we talked about how all of us, you're either under the curse of the covenant works or you're in the blessings of the covenant of grace. And so we think about that, we speak of total depravity. You look around the world around you, even yourself, the world's not, you know, where it should be. You know, there was paradise on earth, heaven on earth. And then sin brought um, the world around us the way it is. That's why you see murder, you know, rapes, injustice, race, whatever it is, the issue is, it all comes from the, the sin that Adam committed as our federal head. And you see this kind of progressive unfolding of the gospel all throughout the Old Testament from the New, that on Genesis 3.15, that God will crush the head of the serpent and bring about this person who would deliver, you know, deliver us from sin. And that person we would see is Jesus, you know, wasn't David, wasn't Samson, it wasn't Moses, it wasn't Daniel. And it wasn't, anyone, it wasn't Solomon, it wasn't no one that um, the Old Testament people thought it would be. We finally get the New Testament, it's Jesus. And not only was Jesus the son of God, he was God himself. And so Jesus, like me and Daniel talked about, he kept all the moral law. Me and you, we, we, may, we may lie, we may have stolen something, we got, kind of gotten older or younger, we committed adultery, we've broken all of God's moral law. And the Bible says that we can trust in Christ and his righteousness, he imputes it to us or he transfers it to us. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin or your sin. He sees Christ's perfection. And so I hope that maybe somebody you know, listening, they're factually about theology, but they don't know Jesus. I pray that ultimately that through this covenant theology, they, they can find Christ. And so I thank you so much, Mr. Daniel, man, for coming on here. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate your time and, and enjoyed the conversation. I hope it's helpful to your listeners.